I am told that there's uh, people who are still waiting for seats. So if you happen to have um, seats next to you, maybe scooch in a little bit and leave some open space. And um, by chance, if you were looking for the notes and you couldn't find any, they were all gone. They, they were all picked up. Office staff were printing off new notes. And if you wanted the notes, Jerry, you got some? Um, just raise your hand and he'll be happy to give them yours. Sue's got some too. Um, if you want notes, people will be handing them out for you this morning. Really glad that you're here. I want to echo what Joe and Michael said. Good, good day to be here, especially if you're new to New Hope. Chance to get connected and to meet individuals that maybe might not be so easy on an, another typical day because of all the tents that are out back. Um, if you didn't see those when you came in, the parking lot this morning, a lot of tents, food tents and ministry table tents on the west end of the building. We'll talk more about that in a minute, give you a chance to get connected with people here at New Hope. I'm going to ask you to go to John chapter 1, if you would, this morning. If you have a Bible with you, maybe electronically or hard copy, if you're watching at home, good time to get your Bible out. John chapter 1, and I'll explain where we're going in a minute. We're doing the hard question series that we've only got a couple weeks left in. Myself, I have discovered about myself as I'm aging that I tend to be a bit of a rebel at heart. And my rebel at heart comes out in different ways as I age, like um, I'm willing to wear white after Labor Day, okay? <laughs> right? I'll hear about it when I get home, but I made a decision this morning to put on a white shirt because I don't understand where that rule came from. And until somebody tells me, I don't want to abide by it, okay? There, there's one of those things you're not supposed to do, but I'm going to do it anyways, Another thing is, I'd still like to wear a pair of cutoff shorts, okay, I'm just saying, but my wife and my kids all went, ooh, at the thought of that, okay, so it's okay for girls to wear cutoff shorts, not okay for guys to wear cutoff shorts, I want to know where that rule is at, because I wore them in the 70s, why can't I wear them today, all right, there's another rule. The rule that I was taught in Bible college and carried over into my formative years as a young adult that theologians passed on to me and mentors in which they said, don't teach deep, hard theology on Sunday mornings because people won't get it. And I wanted to know where that rule was written because I'm about to break that rule. We're going to look at the Trinity this morning. And the hard question is, how do I understand the Trinity? I invite the opportunity to bring it into this setting because God's people need to understand these things as much as we can. God has revealed it in His Word. We want to examine it. So here's what I would willingly admit. The subject matter we're about to discover this morning is way above my pay grade. There's things that God has revealed in His Word. We do the best we can to make sense of it. And there's things that He has chosen not to tell us. And so we come before Him this morning, and I'm going to ask you to pray together with me for this, humbly, that we would ask God to help us understand. Would you do that with me? Let's pray together. Father, we care so deeply for the people that You've put in our life individuals that we come into contact with on such a regular basis who are absolutely confused or are rejecting the things that you declare in your Bible, the things that we embrace, and yet many times we find ourselves not even able to defend 
why we believe what we believe. I pray that as we examine the Trinity, the things that you have revealed about yourself and about the Son and about the Spirit, that we would come to a place of understanding this morning as much as we are capable of. So I pray, Father, that you would use the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds. Give us a capacity to see things we cannot see on our own. We willingly lay this before you, and we ask it in the name of the one who is the name above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. The most difficult thing about the concept of the Trinity is this. There is no perfect way to understand it this side of heaven. So we willingly admit that. We can't fully comprehend it, but we do the best we can. The most concise statement that was expressed to me as a child when I was trying to wrap my mind around this is this. God is one, eternally existent in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Well, as a child, when you hear that, it just causes your mind to go into a cloud position. Like, what? It's hard for a child, let alone for an adult. Now, I've heard the childhood-type explanations that you've probably heard. Well, we'll picture the Trinity like an apple. And the apple's got the, the meat, the white meat of the apple, and it's got the seeds of the apple, and it's got the skin of the apple, and they're all the apple, but that you could picture as the Trinity, or, or, or I've heard the one of the egg. It, it, the Trinity's like the egg. It's got this shell, and it's got the yolk, and it's got the white component to it, and those all fail because God is not parts of a whole. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are equal nil personages, and yet all in one. So I've heard of those descriptions, but they fall short because God is not parts of God. The one that probably is a little bit stronger is this illustration. Maybe this will help you when you're talking with a child, is the water illustration of the Trinity is like vapor and ice and water liquid. They're all the same component but different. That one also fails a little bit short because the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not forms of God. Each of them are God. So the, we understand these illustrations are just a picture, and, and yet they're, they're weak. They're not entirely accurate. Then the, the issue is vastly complicated by the reality that we're told in God's Word that one of the Godhead God the Son came to this planet and became man and walked among us, and a very, very large population of this planet rejects that thought. Islam have nothing to do with it. They see Jesus as a prophet, good man, not God. Judaism rejects that thought that Jesus would be God. We'll get into that in a little bit more detail in just a minute. A large portion of this planet won't accept it because they don't understand it. And then another portion of this planet attempts to explain it away by saying Jesus was a created being. One of my favorite paintings is one that I keep on my laptop as a screensaver. I'm going to ask the tech team to put it up on the screen for you. Vasily Polinov painted this. He was a Russian artist. 1854 to 1929 when he lived. He painted this towards the end of his life. I love it because he really captured, I think, a good image of Jesus in the sense, very Middle Eastern clothing, walking along the lake shore by himself, 
because God the Son came to explain God the Father and God the Spirit, the Trinity, to us. That's what Scripture says, John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. I've come to the place where I understand that when we're asking this hard question, how do I understand the Trinity? What we're really asking is, how does Jesus fit into this? I understand God the Father. And I can see elements in the Bible of God the Spirit, but how do you find the Trinity? How does Jesus fit into this? Let's start at the very beginning. Look with me on the screen at Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We understand when it says likeness and image, it's not necessarily talking about hair, eyes, teeth. It's not talking about feet and hands. It's talking about the reflection of God, that component within humans that reflects God. But what I really wanted you to notice, and Jody, would you put that back on the screen again, Genesis 1? Let's look at that very closely. Let us, plural, make man in our image according to our likeness, plural. The Hebrew word that is used there is always used to represent more than two individuals. Us and our plural statement in the very first book, in the very first chapter of the Bible. To attempt to wrap our minds around the concept of the Trinity, we have to look at John 1. So I'm going to ask you to go with me to John 1.1. 1, 1. And this is the way it's stated. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now know this, John, the author of this book, writes this at the very, very end of his life, likely while he's living in Ephesus. And he pens these words. And we know that John wrote it because individuals explicitly named John as the author. Irenaeus, for instance, I want you to see his quote. Look with me on the screen. Irenaeus in 200 AD said, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned upon him, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. Why is that especially important? Irenaeus is a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp is a direct disciple of John. In other words, Irenaeus is only one generation removed from John directly. John lives to be 98, 99, maybe some people think 102 years of age, dies in Ephesus. He has a disciple by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp builds into Irenaeus, and Irenaeus says, that John, that John wrote this, and the early church fathers consistently held to John as the author of this. I don't know if you like doing this when you're sitting in church, but pull out your phone right now and look up Papyrus P52, and you'll find that at a museum in England is a parchment example of the earliest known copy of the book of John, Papyrus P52. And you'll find that that was discovered in Egypt, further validating John as the author and how quickly the gospel moved across the world. John was banished to Patmos 
under Nero as a Caesar. He stayed there until Nero died. When Trajan became Caesar, John was released and he lived out the rest of his life in the city of Ephesus. Many believe caring for Jesus' mom, Mary. It was his responsibility. Whether Mary was still alive at that time, we don't frankly know. So hear this. What you're reading and what he writes, he writes from the perspective at the very end of his life after writing the book of Revelation. After encountering Jesus on the island of Patmos. He writes with authority like no one else about who Jesus is, and you have to read this absolutely stunned. Look at John 1, 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and immediately you see the parallel between Genesis 1 and John 1, new creation, old creation. And that word beginning pops out at you because like the beginning of what? That's the word arche, in the beginning. Just three words. Beginning of what? Arche is beginning, and arche is the root word for the word architect that we have in the English world today. And I want you to look very closely at the definition, whether you have the notes or you see it up on the screen. It's talking about the originator, the one who's there, at the beginning, the one who commences all things, but it also, do you notice the second half of the definition? The chief, one in charge. And so John's using this word to describe Jesus, and he's saying he's both creator and ruler, but here specifically, arche refers to the beginning of the universe. And it's not by accident that John starts out this declaration with the exact same language as the book of Genesis. And what I want you to see is how it's also linked with the very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Look with me on the screen. Revelation 3.14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, this is Jesus speaking, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning, the arche of the creation of God. Now, if you engaged in conversation with somebody of a Mormon background or Jehovah's Witness background, they would say, see right there, it's saying that Jesus had a beginning. And they don't understand the word archaic. They haven't dug, dug into the theology of what this is stating. There's a, there's a truth being stated here. Let's see if we're all on the same page with this statement. I'll state this definitively. And you say amen if you agree with it. Only God is eternal. Okay? We're all on the same page, most of us anyways. Only God is eternal. So as we understand that, we would also then say that means not the earth, not the heavens, not the universe. Science agrees on that point, that time began with creation of the universe. So whatever is before that is eternal. John's making the statement right out of the gate that at the point everything else began, he already was. So John's got a really definitive statement here. He's saying Jesus existed before heaven and earth, not a created being, but from all eternity. So this truth here is a statement of Jesus' deity because, as we just agreed a moment ago, only God is eternal. 
So I want to make sure I really understand what he's stating here. Look with me on the screen at Colossians 1.16. For by him, and this is speaking of Jesus, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So hear this. There was a point when the universe did not exist. Science agrees on that. The most brilliant minds agree on that. There was a point when the universe did not exist. But the Bible is emphatically clear. There was never a point when God did not exist. He is the self-existent one. And so he shows up on Sinai talking to Moses and saying, I am that I am. What should we tell people? This is my eternal name. I am that I am. And so David echoes that in Psalm 90, verse 2. Look at this. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So we've already got the first three words down. In the beginning, now here comes the second part, was the word. In the beginning, was the word, John 1.1. 1, 1. Now, I hope that we would all agree on this thought, that God created by his word. And so that's why Scripture says, and God said, let there be. That's the way the ancients understand that. It's the way you should understand that as you're reading the Bible. And the Scriptures say this in Psalm 33.9, he commanded and it stood fast. Now, I'm just going to take you back to eighth grade English class for just a second. Trust me, this won't be painful. Do you remember what verbs are? Verbs are action words. There's a verb that was used very deliberately by John in this statement when he says, in the beginning was the word. Was is the action word. Was is the verb that's used here. What's the verb? The verb is emi. And this particular use of this verb is describing a continuing action in the past. Something that's perpetually going on, and John uses the past tense form of it, EMI, it's a continuing action in the past. It doesn't have a point of beginning. In other words, this, continuous existence before the beginning. In the beginning, verb EMI, was continuous existence before anything else. Now, this is really significant. If you feel like you're off in the weeds, just hang on. That's going to get weedier in just a moment. John did not use the word genoamai. Why does that matter? Genoamai means became. If he had said, in the beginning became the word genoamai, that would mean Jesus had a beginning and existence that started at a point. But he doesn't use that. He uses emi. He uses this verb that says there's an action word here. So here's what EMI is stressing. It's stressing that the word always existed. There was never a point of beginning. Remember what's going on here. John's looking back over the course of his life, his past existence with Jesus. He was on the mountainside when Jesus had the moment of transfiguration, and he saw Jesus in blazing white with Elijah and Elisha. He was at the tomb when Lazarus was resurrected from the tomb. This same John saw Jesus walking after death, resurrected, 
And he was also on the island of Patmos, and he wrote the book of Revelation. This same John now writes from within the walls of Ephesus, and he is deliberately choosing these words, fully knowing what he is communicating to those who are reading this. And that's why I said, read this stunned. And here is why it's about to get weedier, if you will. And the grass is going to get pretty tall, but just bear with me on this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, Word, is the word Logos. And many of you know what that is. I have a Logos software program on my computer. Some of you do too. You've heard the word Logos. Do you really understand what it's saying here? In ancient Greek philosophy... Logos was understood to be the principle of reason and order in the universe, and it predates Jesus. Individuals wrestled with the meaning of Logos long before Jesus was walking this planet physically as Jesus the man, trying to wrap their minds around Logos. So the Greeks saw it as this very impersonal and very abstract force a created force and a source of wisdom, but nonetheless removed from them. Now, look with me on the screen at the word logos. This is just the definition for it. Something said, also reasoning. To the average Greek person, this was the most important principle in the universe. There is a philosopher by the name of Heraclitus, and he predates Socrates and Plato and Cicero and Alexander. And he was a person of great reasoning, and he was trying to balance out. How could there be so much chaos in the world, and yet so much order? How can there be so much turmoil, and yet some things come together and make sense? How could there be these opposing forces? How could there be towers that get destroyed in New York City with jets flying into them, and yet, how could there be beautiful bumblebees that pollinate flowers? And this is what the philosophers reasoned through. How do we make sense of this chaos? Well, Heraclitus brought the reasoning forward and said, any order that's brought out of the chaos is because of this force called the Word. And interesting, Heraclitus came from a city called Ephesus. So this Greek concept of logos is that it's this impersonal force that's got power over things. And, and the ancient Greeks were not the only ones to think this way. Also, you would find it in India and in Egypt and in Persia. And eventually, a person by the name of George Lucas called it the force. No kidding. There's this entity out there. It's impersonal, but it brings order to things. Now, logos is not just a Greek thought. Actually, you go back far enough in time and you'll find that the Hebrews had it as a foundation of their thinking, that the Word was paramount in the actions of God. And every time that God acted, it was His Word. And so it became so crucial to them that they sought to memorize the words of God. And so they dedicated their life to memorizing the Old Testament. And when I say that, I don't mean they memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the words and the names of the book. I mean they memorized the books, the entire words, and to be moved into the category of where you studied to become a higher education student like Paul, they actually got to the point where they could recite the words backwards. 
as teenagers. So the word became so important to them, and this is the difference between the Greeks and the Jewish philosophers. The Jews understood that the word is the active agent through which God accomplishes his will. So in the Jewish understanding of the ancient days, God's word did things. It was very action-oriented, and it's the active agent through which God accomplishes his will. So in Genesis, we find God speaking, and creation comes into existence. Or God talking with Abram and initiating a covenant with him. Look, look with me on the screen at this from Genesis 15. The, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, and God's establishing a covenant with Abram. And through his word, he gave the Ten Commandments to Israel. Well, that same understanding is carried over into the New Testament. And the New Testament writers who were Jewish in their background began writing things like, the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword dividing the thoughts to the very joints and marrow. This is why they're putting all these pieces together. Let me just hit the pause button for just a moment with you. To you this morning, sitting here and watching from home, there are two really crucial reasons why you need a good understanding of the Logos and why it's significant for you in 2021. First one. Because by his word, he promised a path forward leading to the total forgiveness of sin for you and eternal life with him. Good reason, right? Good reason to understand this logos because the word committed that, the one who creates action. And also for the second reason, because it, logos, belongs to the one who is the name which is above every name. Listen to Revelation 19.13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Okay, let's sew these pieces together. In the beginning was the Word, and here comes point three. The Word was with God. John's removing any doubt whatsoever of this eternal preexistence of Jesus. And I want you to notice the brilliance of what he's just done. John was trained as a fisherman. His dad raised him to go out on the sea. He knew fishing, and yet he studied at the feet of Jesus. And this one was such a brilliant mind as a former fisherman, now theologian, who's encountered the living Jesus, began with this place of common ground. And he says to the Greeks and to the Jews in the beginning was the word, and the Greeks and Jews would look at that and say, yeah, I get that, absolutely. That word's been around a long time. We understand that. And then he gets them joined, and here is where the New Testament parts from all other world religions and all other philosophy when John says, and the word was God. What? A phenomenal transition has just taken place there. John writes that the word is not just this understanding of a force, and it's not just this Hebrew understanding of God's action. The word is not removed from God, but the word is God. And from this understanding, John launches into the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, by saying this, from all eternity, God the Son, who became Jesus the man, is in this deep, intimate fellowship 
with God the Father because he uses a very specific phrase here that's probably not seen by most of you, but it's the phrase pros ton theon was with God. I'm not trying to teach you the Greek language. I'm not trying to teach you Latin. I'm not trying to teach you Hebrew. I just want you to get this down. Pros ton theon was with God is captured so poorly in the English language that it completely misses the richness of what the Greek expresses here. It means far more than that the word merely existed. I want you to take just a moment right now and picture in your mind the person who is most intimate to you. Who is the person you could trust with your most heartfelt feelings? Right now, husbands, you better be saying your wife, and wife, you better be saying your husband. Who is the person that you could sit down with a cup of coffee across the table and bear your soul to? And you're beginning to get a glimpse of what John's writing here, proston, theon, because this is the picture of two intelligent beings engaged in deep, meaningful discourse, and they're facing one another eye to eye, looking together. The most beautiful example I can find of this is the night that Jesus was arrested. He's in the garden, and they're about to haul him off in chains. And he goes to the Father. He says, Father, I've done everything that you've asked me to do. I've accomplished all the purpose. Would you, would you bring me back to the proston theon that we had before the world was created? Look with me at this church. Look, look with me on the screen at John 17, 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Here it is. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Church, I, I read this, and I mean this sincerely from the bottom of my heart. I read that with profound humility. That he left that for me? That he had proston theon with God the Father, and he chose to come here for me, face-to-face -face communion, and he willingly emptied himself? What does Philippians say? That he thought it not equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. And it's not just that he took on the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For me, I think it would really be helpful if we all said for me together. So how about on three? If it was for you, you say that. One, two, 
three for me. Makes it really personal, doesn't it? He left that, prostantheon, for me. And so John keeps going, almost done here. The word was God. Not only face-to-face fellowship with the Father, but then this preeminent statement about Jesus. The word, the word is God. And that statement is only four words in that Greek language and only four words in the English language. And you see it on the screen, theos and hologos. I told you I'm, I'm not trying to teach you that language. You need to understand this is the clearest declaration of the deity of Jesus. And the position of the Trinity found anywhere within the Bible. Keep going. Here's five. He was in the beginning. Arche, we already said, the commencement with God. Why does he say it that way again? Because what he's done is he's just underscored the significance and he's clarifying who this is. So he's restating this profound truth, which is a total match for everything Jesus said about himself. Look with me on the screen at this statement by Jesus, John 14, 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Where does that come from? Philip, one of the 12 disciples, comes to Jesus and he said, would, would you show us the Father? We want to see God. And Jesus' response to him was, Philip, have you been with me so long you haven't even figured it out yet? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father These are the reasons why the writers of the Bible are so explicit and emphatic in repeating what Jesus also says about himself. Look on the screen, Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And Revelation 21.5, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So John has built this crescendo moving towards the magnificent statement of verse 3. This is where it ends. Part six, all things came into being, Genoamai, through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. If you look at the literal Greek language for that statement there, through him, what John is acknowledging is that this logos, this word, is the agent of all of creation, everything. Now hear this. Let's use logic to end this, church. To be the creator of all things must mean that he himself is uncreated. Only God is uncreated. Say amen if you agree with that. So John's rationale is, from a philosophical world standpoint... He's saying, here he is, he's on display. And here, when he speaks of creation, saying all things came into being, Genoamai, he's saying those things came into being, but not Jesus. Soft, subtle shift to wrap this up. I think we would all agree that this present world is messed up. It is way different than the world that God created. Relationships are messed up. Creation is messed up. Things are decaying. Things are dying. We understand that's the result, the catastrophic result of the fall. 
and the cataclysmic events of a global flood, which not only affected the human race, but it affected all of creation, this entire globe. Jesus has promised that one day He will redeem not only believers in Him, but also the material world. Look with me to end this, Romans 8, 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It took John three years to figure out who Jesus is. But it took him a lifetime to articulate the realities that we have discussed today regarding the Trinity. But God doesn't want you to even struggle for three verses. He makes it so plain and so clear in one verse. It's clearly spelled out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God's own Word saying it. So know this Worshipfully, humbly, submissively, awestruck. The man on the seashore, the man at the wedding, the one at the well, the one on the mountainside, it's the creator of the universe. So we understand that truth according to God's word, so let this be really loud and clear. At New Hope Church, we worship Jesus as Lord and God. That's why Thomas fell to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. The word was with God is the heart of the doctrine of the Trinity, and it stands forth from all eternity. What somebody tried to explain to me as a child, that he's one, in essence, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Couldn't wrap my mind around it as a child. I still struggle with it as an adult. But here's what I see in God's word. Verse 3, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So that one, that one became flesh and dwelt among us and taught us and healed us and rebuked us and protected us and loved us and was crucified for us and was resurrected again for us. He is your Savior and your Lord and your friend. So Jesus isn't just your Savior. He's also your maker. How awesome. You thought that one-handed catch at the MSU game yesterday for the interception was awesome. I watched the stands erupt. People were praising and worshiping, man. Like, wow! I hope as people study and understand this, they would go, Wow, this is awesome. I just defied my mentors, taking you through some pretty deep weeds. It didn't hurt too much, did it? Okay, it's time to eat some fun food. So let me pray for you, and then I'll give you some instructions. Father, I thank you for the privilege of working through these deep things that most of the world would willingly ignore except when you make things really, really clear through the power of the Holy Spirit. So God, I ask that as we speak into the lives of friends of ours who wonder whether or not this stuff is legit, 
God, that you would give us clarity to remember and recall and boldness to be able to speak into the lives of people who are desperately looking for answers. Use us. Use us that way this week, Lord God. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. If you're very new to New Hope, meaning the last couple weeks or maybe even today, there is a gray tent at the end of the building that's right there for visitors, and you can get some connection information. But know this, there's a lot of other tents that are out there also. They represent the various ministries of the church. A great way for you to get connected. And as you work your way around, you're going to find another tent with hot dogs and carrots and food of all types, okay? So if you're up for lunch and we can feed you, head out that way. Also watch for this. I don't know if they got them all in the nine o'clock service, but there's some stickers that were made this last week. Um, if you got little stick people on the side of your car, in the back of your car, like a mom and a dad or a mom with kids, we, des- we designed a stick figure church and the doors into the church are NH, New Hope. There's also a little small NH. I put one on my truck yesterday. And there's a retro design sticker. So look for those at the table as well. In the meantime, have a great week, New Hope.